1: Congratulations, True Crime Addicts. We've survived another week. It is Friday, February 10th, 2023. And uh, tonight I've got some great stories. A woman has vanished under mysterious circumstances in Lancashire. An FBI official has been helping some dirty, dirty Russians, says prosecutors. And I've got the real story behind that romance writer who faked her own death. Stay tuned. Yes. Super excited. We are all pumped to have James uh, Renner. James Renner. On. James Renner has zeroed in. On. James Renner once again drops a bombshell. bombshell. Investigative James journalist Renner. reporter James, James, Renner. James Renner, who's been on James the podcast Renner. a long time. By by the line. Writer. All right. This is a jam packed show. I've got lots of crazy stories for you this week. I've got the top stories, but some. Really great cold case updates after the break and um, some advances in AI that might help law enforcement, but has everybody freaked out already, of course. Uh, but here we go. Um, and let me just say, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for coming along on this adventure. It really helps uh, we survive. This podcast survives by uh, reviews and subscriptions. So please take a minute and subscribe if you like what you hear. Um So here we go. Okay, top story. This is a strange missing persons case developing in northwest England in the county of Lancashire. 45-year-old Nicola Bully was last seen the morning of Friday, January 27th, walking her dog, Willow, at a park along the River Wyah, uh, according to Wales Online. Nicola, uh, called Nikki by friends, has two children and a partner, no reason to leave, Her cell phone was found on a bench overlooking the river, still connected to a work conference call. It's a weird case, and in some ways a little reminiscent of the Moore-Murray case, which turned 19 yesterday, uh, because she vanished in a very kind of public area in a 10-minute window. And there's really no direct evidence of a crime other than the fact that she's missing. So very odd, a little reminiscent. Here's the timeline as we understand it at the moment. At 8.43 a.m., that's on that Friday, January 27th, at 8.43 a.m., Nikki was spotted walking her dog by the river after dropping off her kids at school. At 9.01, she logged onto this work conference call. She was logging in remotely on her cell phone. She turned off her microphone and video for that call. Apparently, she was just listening in. She was spotted by another witness at 9.10, still with her dog. That work conference call ended at 9.30, about 20 minutes later, but uh, she had not logged off. At 9.35, another dog walker found Willow, that's her dog, abandoned, and then found her cell phone on the bench. And uh, that's really when this mystery begins. The police have said... This is kind of ridiculous and I'm anxious to hear what my friends in the UK think about this, but the police came out and said they believe she fell into the river and drowned. But um, photos of the scene show this bench that she was sitting on. It's several steps from the river. The river's not like a raging current or anything. It doesn't really, I'm sure it's deep in the middle, but it doesn't look that deep. People are walking by it all day. And normally when you drown, your body, pops up pretty quickly unless it's, it's, you know, some sort of rapid situation. The family doesn't believe she drowned and has said that Nikki was a very good swimmer. So this forensic expert named Peter Falding heard about this and he donated his time and equipment. He's got these powerful um, sonars that's, or cameras, that scan the river, bank, the river beds and he's found like dozens of, of bodies that way. He usually finds them within like an hour of when he arrives. Arrives. He, he didn't find a body either. And uh, this Peter Falding believes that her cell phone might have actually been planted on the bench as kind of a decoy, like trying to set up a narrative already. Local police have grown frustrated with uh, social media influencers who are going to this park and taking selfies of themselves on this park bench and just kind of, um, you know, trying to get some uh, some some likes and some views by being at the scene of this developing crime? Please don't do that. The police are sending people away. But uh, I, you know, I I'm not from there. I I, I don't know this river so well, but. Um, doesn't seem like a common occurrence. It doesn't strike me as somebody who just fell into the river and drowned. So we'll keep an eye on that case. Next story here. We've learned a lot more this week about a former FBI official who was charged with money laundering and conspiracy for helping a Russian oligarch investigate a criminal rival. Now, oligarchs are, are you know, businessmen in other countries that don't have a lot of regulations and they can kind of get away with anything. Um, It's a, you know, this sounds very similar to things that are happening here in the United States, but it's to the nth degree. It's like somewhere between a businessman, CEO and um, Tony Soprano. That's kind of what these oligarchs are all about. And they use their money to influence politicians there and, and elsewhere, as you'll see here. The New York Times is covering this case, and there's also a very excellent article in Business Insider about the whole thing that uh, you should check out. And I always link these in the um, the source notes, the liner notes, as I like to call them. Prosecutors allege that Charles McGonigal uh, accepted at least $225,000 in secret cash payments from this Russian government, uh, cabal this group, this, this syndicate. Mc, McGonigal, um, and contrary to his name, he was not a Hogwarts professor. Uh, he was a high-ranking official in the New York FBI office where he ran sensitive counterintelligence investigations. He retired in 2018, but before he did, one of his jobs was supervising an investigation into one Oleg Deripaska. A Russian, this, this is the oligarch. He's a Russian businessman. Um, And he's pretty good buddies with Vladimir Putin. Anyways, it was uh, Deripaska who was paying McGonagall, they say. It appears he was buying McGonagall's influence to help him uh, try to get out of economic sanctions and also to investigate one of his rival oligarchs back in Russia. But the indictment also reveals some other strange allegations. Darapaska was also a client of Paul Manafort, and you might recognize that name. Manafort served as Trump's campaign chairman before he was convicted of fraud in 2018. Uh, he also allegedly, this is uh, McGonagall, also allegedly helped the daughter of a Russian intelligence officer. I guess that would be KGB, right? A Russian intelligence officer. His daughter. He helped. Uh, he helped. This uh, this guy's daughter get an internship at the New York Police Department's counterterrorism department. The article in Business Insider has details from McGonagall's former girlfriend, who says that this guy kept a secret second phone that he used solely to send encrypted text messages to persons unknown. He was using that WhatsApp so that it was encrypted on both ends, and um, and she would go out to dinner with him and. This Russian dude would show up and hand him some envelopes. She never she said she never saw what was in the envelopes, but this would happen pretty frequently at restaurants and also sports games. The big question right now, everybody's asking, is how deeply does this, how deep does this deceit go? Like, what else was McGonagall up to if he's doing this illegal stuff? Everybody's wondering, was he a was he a double agent? Was he a spy? McGonagall had a role in investigating the interference in the 2016 election, by the way. Um, at, at the very least, this is a tale of greed, but it could be something much, much more nefarious. So um, watch that trial uh, coming up. He's going to plead not guilty, by the way. New story in the Times this week about that romance writer who faked her own death a couple weeks, well, a couple years ago. If you haven't heard this story, it is a doozy. Follow along. I'm talking about Susan Meachin, who was a big presence in the online self-publishing romance communities. And if you don't think that's a big deal, you don't know much about the romance industry. Um, I'm I'm a writer as well. I've got some books out. I've met some of these romance authors. And It is a crazy business. They're writing like 10 books a year or, and and they're publishing every other month. And they make a decent living of this, but people are just, when you're you're reading romance, they are voracious readers and they're just digesting these books left and right and they can't stop reading. So there's always a demand for romance writers. And she was one of them. She was up and coming. She was publishing a lot online. And um, she was also helping out other writers create covers for, for their work and, um, you know, trying to do right by others. Uh, that is up until her reported death in the fall of 2020. A post on her Facebook page implied that she had committed suicide after being the subject of online harassment from other writers. Let me let me go back and, and put a line through that. We're supposed to say died by suicide. Um, uh, instead of committed suits. Anyways, uh, so I digress. On January 2nd this year, so everybody thought she was dead for two years. On January 2nd, just a couple, uh, you know, last month, she suddenly started posting on Facebook again, saying that she was now in a good place and, quote, let the fun begin. Naturally, everybody kind of freaked out. Some had mourned her as a friend. Now they felt betrayed. Many uh, right away, Alleged that she had done something illegal, and there seems to be some question about that. One former friend of uh, uh, Michens, yeah, Michens. One former friend and colleague reported her to the FBI's cyber crimes division, and local police visited her home just last week to interview her and take a look at her bank accounts, and which she gave them access to right away. Uh, there was some talk about whether or not she had raised funds or her family had raised funds after her death. Um, you should read this piece in the New York Times. It's, it's a great profile. And the profile shows, you know, the bigger picture here, which is, we're dealing, this is a woman who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And she would enter in these manic states and she'd write and write and write. She produced 14 novels. Um, and while she was big in this community, she began to be the target of online harassment, just like you'll find in any little group that has a Facebook page. Eventually, there's these fights for power in these weird little clicks, and that's what happened to her. Um, They interviewed her husband, and he said, oh, it was his idea to post that she had died. Uh, He was a long-haul truck driver, and he he had become worried that when he was gone driving that she would harm herself if this harassment got too bad. And one day, her, her daughter came home, found her unconscious on the floor after taking Xanax. And that's when he asked his daughter to post and say that she had died as a way of separ- separating herself from that toxic community. So maybe the real crime here isn't somebody faking their own death, which is not technically a crime in the United States. Perhaps, though, perhaps the crime is the online harassment that would lead a person to do such a thing. Um, we just have to be kind to each other. I know that sounds a little hippy dippy, but it's really that simple. So please just be kind to each other online as much as you can. Um, so kind of a kind of a sad end to that story, a little anticlimactic. Hopefully now she can sell her story. You know, now you know that would make for quite a great memoir. Um so hopefully she bounces back. Those are the top stories. Coming back after the break, you got to hear about this stuff going on with AI. Uh, they solved a case in Windsor, Ontario as well. Um, and uh, lots more to come. So I'll be back in 2 and 2 with more True Crime this week.
2: Please hang up and try again. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Hi, I'm Alexa Doubt with The Porchlight Project, a new nonprofit dedicated to funding DNA testing and genetic genealogy for cold cases in the state of Ohio. For our first case, we assisted the Cuyahoga Falls Police Department, funding new DNA tests on evidence from the 1987 unsolved murder of 17-year-old Barbara Blatnick. That information was given to expert genealogists who traced the genetic markers to a man named James Zastonic, who was arrested in May of 2020 and charged with Barb's murder. Our goal at the Porchlight Project is to entirely fund three to four cold case investigations every year. Each new case costs about $6,000 to complete, which is a small price to pay for closure. The Porchlight Project relies on generous donations from the public. Even $5 can help us solve a murder. For more information on how to help, please visit porchlightonline.org.
1: And we're back with Space 1999, starring Prentice Hancock. Police in Windsor, Ontario finally named the killer of Lubisa Topic this week. She's the six-year-old girl who was playing outside her family's home in Windsor on May 14th, 1971, when a stranger lured her away. She was later found dead in an alley, so according to CBC, she had been sexually assaulted. In 2019, this is where it gets a little strange, a little different from the normal um, solve, In 2019, Windsor police identified the man responsible for her murder using DNA evidence, but they said their suspect had died just a couple months prior, and they were not going to release his name. Obviously, this upset a lot of people, and so this week, they overturned that decision and publicly named Frank Arthur Hall as the girl's murderer. Hall was 22 years old when Uh, Lubisa was killed and lived two kilometers away from her house. He was 70 years old when he died. Um, So what do you think of that decision? In Canada, they take uh, privacy a lot more seriously than we do here in the States. They try to protect people involved in crimes, not just the victim, but you know, everybody involved in the crime until you are brought to trial and justice. And this guy, he didn't get his day in court. Um, Sounds like a real bastard, right? But it's a weird gray area. So I'm not exactly sure how I feel about this, whether he should have been named or not. Maybe he shouldn't have. Maybe, you know, at least they should have told the family. Uh, I'm pretty sure they did. So I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Police in California filed first degree murder charges this week against a man they say killed at least two women in Ventura County in 1981. This according to KVTA. 68-year-old Tony Garcia faces two counts of murder as well as rape and kidnapping charges and could end up with a death sentence. Even though California right now has put the executions on hold, there's a moratorium going on right now. Uh, The victims were 20-year-old Rachel Zendejas, whose body was found in a carport in January 1981. She'd been strangled and sexually assaulted as well. Then in December of That same year, the body of 21-year-old Lisa Godneck was found in her apartment. She'd also been strangled to death. They linked Tony Garcia to both of those crimes. Uh, Tony would have been about 26 years old at the time of the murders. They used genetic genealogy to track him down through his family tree. So they've got him on two murders in Ventura County alone. Is that all he did? Hard to believe. You know, if, if we got them on two, there's likely more. So they might have a serial killer on their hands. And I'm sure people are looking for other um, Jane Does to maybe connect with, with him or identified people who, you know, remain unsolved. Here's some weird news for you. Here's that AI story. Artificial intelligence is everywhere at the moment. Have you checked out chat GPT? It's amazing. It's crazy. It's going to change everything. And I, you know, I don't say that lightly. Everybody's saying it's going to change everything, but you have no idea, most of us don't, how much this is going to change your lives in the next five years. Everything will be different. I guarantee it. Here's one thing that's changing. Um, a new AI program can now be used to create hyper-realistic suspect composite sketches in a fraction of the time a police uh, sketch artist could possibly do it. Now, the developers of this software, this program, um, are calling it Forensic Sketch a-Artist, as an A-I-Artist, a So maybe they need to work on their brand, their branding a little bit. Let's come up with a better name, guys. Uh, and I'm talking about Arturo Fortunato and Filippi uh, Renard. Um, they created the program during a hackathon two months ago, this according to an article in Motherboard. Uh, and their program allows you to input race, eye color, facial shape, hair, you know, everything that you would tell a police artist, sketch uh, artist to to put in. You can do that, and it will spit out this hyper-realistic picture, like a picture that you just took of somebody. And um, how cool is that? But hold on. Ethicists are freaking out about this. They're worried that police could use these sketches to target innocent people who just happen to coincidentally look like this AI sketch. Um, They they point to some... um, studies that show mistaken eyewitness testimony contributes to 69% of wrongful convictions in the United States and overwhelmingly targets minorities. So um, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it just something we're gonna have to live with either way? I think it's probably that. So um, interesting times we're living in. Over to pop culture. Hulu has a new doc out this week called Stolen Youth. I'm going to have to check this out because this story is one that I covered here on True Crime this week, and it's just weird. Uh, it's about this, you know, that, that it's, a, well, it's, a, it's a cult. It's this crazy pants cult that sprung up at Sarah Lawrence College about 10 years ago. It's a three-part documentary series, and it dives very deep uh, into the whole story. This is that cult, remember, that was started by Larry Ray this creepy dude who moved into his daughter's dorm or apartment, whatever it was, and began brainwashing her friends. And, of course, sex was involved. Ray was sentenced to 60 years in prison last month. So check that out. Also, on the horizon, coming soon is a new documentary about Jared from Subway called Catching a Monster. Now, if I could go back in time and say that line about 10 years ago, we'd all be like, what? Jared from Subway? He looks like a nice guy. Now he's got his own um, documentary coming out. It premieres March 6th on ID. So uh, put that on your calendar. Uh, let's turn to the bookshelf this week. And this week I've got, um, also, if if you happen to be writing true crime books and you want to you share it with the program, um, my, you know, just shoot me an email, jameswrenner at gmail.com. Uh, You can send it to my P.O. Box, which is on my website. This week, I'm reading Drifting into Darkness. Drifting into Darkness. Here's the write-up. On Thanksgiving weekend in 2004, wealthy Charlotte and Brent Springford Jr. were brutally beaten to death. Suspicion quickly fell on the Springfords' gifted but troubled son, Brent Jr., who would be sentenced to life without parole. But a mystery remained. Who was the elusive woman claiming to be a Native American shaman who investigators believe manipulated Brent into murder. Veteran crime reporter Mark Pinsky, who covered the sensational uh, case of serial killer Ted Bundy, broke the cardinal rule of journalism by involving himself in the Springfield story. Pinsky's extensive research prompted investigators to uh, invite him to join their dogged pursuit of justice. This first-person involvement makes drifting into darkness especially thrilling, placing the reader alongside Pinsky in the hunt for a brutal killer and his accomplices. So check it out, Drifting in Darkness, available online, where books are sold. Uh, and that's the stories for this week, and um, it's Friday, which is always reason to celebrate. And in the words of the incomparable Murray Saw, that means we gotta, 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 get down, Damn it. True Crime This Week is a Fearful Symmetry production. Photo and artwork are licensed through Shutterstock. If you like the cut of my jib, I have another podcast you might enjoy called The Philosophy of Crime, in which I attempt to solve the big questions behind our true crime obsession by looking to philosophy for answers. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Sit, Brownie, sit. Good dog.